Welcome to Vision Driven with Resin Architecture, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of architecture, development, and construction. I'm your host, Greg Croft, and my co-host is Jamie Moulton, and we are thrilled to have you join us on this journey of learning, inspiration, and insight. When you talk about real estate, I would always recommend that you go into it with the exit in mind. Advice I'd give somebody that's presenting their case or pitching their, their loan to a bank. It's just to be really well prepared. Whether you're dreaming of building a space for your business or are simply curious about the fascinating world of architecture and development, join us on this exciting adventure as we unlock the secrets to successful projects and empower you to turn your vision into reality. Okay, we're excited to be here today with Aaron Johnson with Bateman Hall. Um, Aaron, if you would mind just giving us a little bit of your background and what brought you into the construction industry. Sure. Yeah, I kind of grew up in construction um, when I was a youngster on the farm. My dad did a lot of custom home building to make ends meet on the farm, and I learned a lot from him and then uh, pursued a degree in accounting at Utah State University and went for a brief time as a bank examiner, but then uh, moved back to this area and um, had an opportunity to get involved in a construction um, entity named Bateman Hall and uh, more from the accounting side. So I'm the CFO of Bateman Hall, but really my primary responsibility now is chief development officer uh, for both Bateman Hall. And then we recently started a, another entity, a residential entity called Caddis Builders, and we're pursuing uh, development work through Caddis Builders. So I'm re- representing both companies, Bateman okay. Hall and Caddis Builders as a development okay. officer. And how, how many years have you been with Bateman Hall? 28. 28 years. Yep. Okay. That makes so. you a true expert. Well, <laughs> I actually have coined a term. It's called the uh, wisdom of an idiot, and it works quite well. We've learned, we've gotten a lot of wisdom from you know, decisions that, you know, maybe uh, didn't work out. Now we know better. So that, we've, th- yeah, there's some definitely truth to that. <laughs> you learn for, from your mistakes, right? For sure. We're hoping to benefit from you sharing that information. Great. Yeah. I'd love to share, share whatever I've gained over these last 28 years. So, so tell us a little bit about how uh, construction has changed over the course of your career. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, When I first started at Bateman Hall, we were doing a lot of commercial uh, projects, big box projects, Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, Smith's, um, Kmart, um, those kind of companies. And in that world, in that in that world, when we started, most of it was one hundred percent designed, even permitted generally, and so they would send out a notice to bid, invite us to bid against three or four or five other general contractors. And literally within a couple of weeks, we would bid that project with our subcontractors' contributions. And if we were selected as a low contractor, within a week we'd be started on the on the project. So it was very, very fast. There was no development involved. If we were qualified to be on the bidders list, which was mostly a financial and experience qualification, then uh, when they invited us to bid, literally within a month's time, we could be notified of a bid and actually working on the job. So it was very quick. Um, that has all changed now. Uh, there is a little bit of that still, but most everything now is development, relationship development, 
and and construction management development, which means that we get on board even before design begins, and we work along with the design team to develop the project, and then ultimately either negotiate the project or it gets bid out, but mostly negotiated now. Even in the large corporate world that's happening, Walmart still is, is doing bidding process, but generally they're bidding blocks of work and not just a specific project, meaning, hey, we have five or 10 projects that we want you guys to propose on, and you want we want you guys to help us uh, develop these projects along with the design team so that you have a budget at the beginning and um, you're, you're more involved in the process instead of just getting handed a set of plans and, and bidding it and going to work. So many times we're involved in those projects for a year or more um, before the project actually goes now. So most everything we do is, is negotiated, which creates the need for us to have a, a business development department to pursue those projects, but then also be involved in the, the pre-construction work up until when we're ready to start the project. So it's changed a lot. I'm going to throw in some other questions here that are kind of off script, but uh, I feel like a lot of people that we've worked with don't actually like they might think that the general contractor is the one out there swinging the hammer and that 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 does happen. But can you kind of just give a brief overview of what a general contractor is from like what what is Bateman Hall from that perspective? I will say that in in that sense, um, 30 years ago, it was just general contractor now we've there's a new term of relationship there and that's called construction manager which sometimes can be the general contractor and the construction manager but oftentimes it the construction manager could be even different than the general contractor but the work that we do as a traditional general contractor would be managing the project from the budget standpoint and the schedule is and then the subcontractors who are underneath the general contractor and really we're just managing uh, all these different entities to make sure the project is on track and on budget and make sure that any questions that come up or um, obstacles, confusion, uh, issues that come up uh, are handled to the owner's benefit so that their project can continue and they are able to just rely on a single company to make sure the project gets done. And that is really the general contractor's role. Uh, we do some self-performing work. Um, most general contractors are probably doing less and less of that and becoming more of the type of a construction manager and let our subcontractors who are the professionals in the scopes of work um, do that work so we're not necessarily competing against them. So, um, you know, s- some people wonder why the general contractor is even involved at all. Why can't they just go out to the subcontractors and that? And, there's just a lot of moving parts and a lot of things going on and subcontractors aren't necessarily looking at the, the best interests of the other subcontractor, um, the best interests of the schedule. And so we have to bring them all in and kind of create a harmony and orchestra, if you will, and make sure that everybody's operating in the best interest of the projects, which is time and time and budget generally is what we make sure that we're keeping. Okay. Uh, another question that kind of fell into my head when you were talking earlier was the, um, with, with things going more towards where you guys are working with the design team up front, um, that helps keep costs in line. A lot of times when we don't have, uh, well, I can't say a lot of times 
but frequently this happens where when we put a project out to bid after they award the bid, then there's actually an exercise that we call value engineering. And so we kind of go back to the design board. We've got an approved plan, but we kind of have to go through that cycle one more time because there's things that it's really interesting during COVID. We had this where all of a sudden, you know, we couldn't get wood trusses at, at a reasonable price and it was cheaper to go to steel. And um, you guys are more in tune with that because you're dealing with that every day. And so um, working with the design team up front, that gives you kind of that, hey, we're we're going to write, not right size the project, but we're going to write price the project as, as we're going along. Are there any other points that you could add to that? Uh, quite a few. Uh, I'll try to be concise as I can, but... Going back to uh, the prime example, uh, school district, um, you know, they hire a design team to help them create a, a, a schematic design, not a full-blown design by any means, a schematic design with a budget that then they can go to the patrons and create a bond amount that gets passed by the patrons. And then when the bond gets passed, then they go through a full design process, 100% design, and then submit it out to general contractors to bid. Well, during that process, everybody's somewhat crossing their fingers to hopefully they've got the right amount. And the architect does as good a job as the information they have, which is generally statistical information on square foot pricing. Um, perhaps they have an independent or independent um, estimator help them price the project, which generally can be good in, in a, a stable environment that has worked for many years. It's the way it's been done for many years. But when you get an unstable environment um, or a complex project that maybe doesn't have a lot of reference as far as um, statistical data for pricing, um, it can be a little ner unnerving when the school district has paid, you know, the architectural, the design team's fee and done, and done full design without having any contractors having looked at it. And when those bids come in and they know they have a specific bond amount that's been passed, it's very difficult for them to change the amount of money they have because it's that they have a certain amount of money. And when you're going through the bidding process, if those bids are coming in quite a bit higher and even lower can create a problem too, but quite a bit higher than what their bond amount is, it can be very unnerving and disappointing to have spent that money and the amount of time they have already to get that to that point and then find out that they are way over budget. And then after they've spent those, that money to go back to the design team and say, Hey, we, we have an issue here. We're way over budget. We're going to have to redesign or value engineer, um, and to another expense and the amount of time that takes to do that. And in the meantime, prices are probably maybe still escalating. Uh, and it can put the school districts or any other public entity or private entity into a, a, a tough situation where they're behind time already, they're over budget, they've got to pay more design fees to have that that done. So the construction management approach, um, which even in public works now has become uh, an acceptable accepted approach in Idaho, um, I think eight years ago is when that when that was allowed allows the contractor and the design team to work in harmony at the very beginning before real money has been spent and before the bonds have been passed to get a an attractive package that's reasonably that's priced um, assured there's a assured price there 
through reiterations and the, the, the construction manager can check a bit the design as it, as it progresses and say, hey, we're maybe getting a little bit further out of intent of where we're going to have to be based on what the budget is. And the design team can make those adjustments in the back and forth so that when the design is completed, the contractor has is very, very aware of of the of the design and has weighed in and, and the budget is hopefully more accurate and the schedule is more accurate. So when they do go out to bond, they have a much more confident price there that uh, they can deliver the project as designed for the bond when it's passed. And that's true for any other public project or private project too. And so it's eliminated a lot of those crossing your fingers moments where you're waiting for bids to come in. And the general contractor has a lot of great statistical information and um, estimator on staff that can do that. But quite frankly, the ability for us to reach out to our subcontractors and, and say, hey, here's what's being proposed. How what do you think? Is there a better way? Is there a different material that's a cheaper material but still the same quality and benefit? And we get a lot of that great input from subcontractors during the during that process so that when the money is spent for design, it is, you know, we're everybody's pretty assured that that's a good project uh, that can be done on that budget. So it's helped it's helped that a lot. Can you tell us when the right time to contact a general contractor would be within the scope of a project? Yeah. So again, I I always like to say when we're talking about a general contractor in the traditional sense, we're generally talking about the the person that delivers the construction. But now we're in the pre-development stage or the pre-construction stage, which we refer to that via the construction manager, who can also be the general contractor many times is the general contractor. But so in, in terms of what I'm explaining would be, I'd rather use the term construction manager. Okay. And the right time to hire the construction manager would be the same time that you hire the design team. I think they're, they need to be hired at the same time. And one doesn't work for the other. It's what I would call the three-legged stool. You have the owner's entity, you have the design entity, and you have the construction entity. And they work in harmony with each other to develop a proper project to meet the needs of the owner. On, again, on the budget and on the time frame they need that delivered. But I would really suggest the time to do that is before you buy your land or before you buy your building or whatever project you're pursuing. Because there's so many things that come in to bear to whether that land is going to be workable or that building is going to be usable um, that a lot of preliminary stuff should be done before they actually make that purchase so they're not disappointed when the, the city or the public entity says, no, you can't do what you were thinking of doing there or the price is just not going to work um, or there's perhaps a, bet, a better option for you somewhere else or a different building or, or what have you. So I would highly suggest that before you do any kind of a land purchase that you do those, that due diligence and, and, and uh, find a design team and a, and a construction team that can help you with that. And that, that process is relatively inexpensive to do. It's not an expensive venture. There's certainly no guarantees that the project's actually even gonna go forward but it's money well spent before you buy an expensive piece of property. So uh, I know some of our clients, um, they've considered the cost of the land, they've considered construction costs, sometimes design fees, 
isn't a line item on their budget. I would assume that some of them haven't considered the cost of a construction manager. Is it a percentage of the project or how is that? Um, how yeah, should the, someone budget for right. that? The construction manager, again, is just is generally a, a percentage. It can be a negotiated flat fee. But really, we like to think of it as not just a fee for the construction manager. It would be the fee for the entire project package. Construction is the biggest part of that for us. I mean, probably 85, 90% of the, of the fee would be the construction portion. We, we can't charge a client a, you know, a large amount of money on the pre-construction and then have the project not go forward. We need to have, we're somewhat at risk in that process, meaning uh, our, our desire is the same desire they have, which is to make the project go forward. And so our money is made when the project actually is built. So our fee up front is somewhat minimal um, compared to the total construction fee, because uh, you know if the if the if the consumer or the client doesn't actually finish the project, that would be a lot of money out of their pocket. On the flip side of that, the design team a big portion of their fee is obviously the pre-construction, the design, and a smaller portion of their fee is in the construction phase. But having both entities on board at the beginning, and again, the, the preliminary schematic um, design and budget that we're talking about before you buy your piece of land for both parties is a relatively inexpensive charge that I think is a big, a great investment before they, you know, they actually spend some real money in buying the property and starting the, the design. Um, I think it's well worth that. Our fee is generally a percentage fee, but the pre-construction part of that, when we're working with the design team, could be a flat fee, it could be a monthly rate, um, whatever the client desires. And quite frankly, many times it's a, a pretty small fee because we know the client doesn't have a lot of money to spend in that world, but yet it is a really useful amount. So we don't wanna dissuade them from hiring a construction manager up front by charging you know, more than they're able to, to manage when they don't know for sure if they even have a project um, you know, to do. So. I, th I think we do something similar even on, uh, like we do a feasibility study and it's kind of at a, it's, we're not at a loss on it, but it's kind of a, hey, we're not really making money here. We're just trying to get you to know if this is a good project for you. And then it, you know, I think there's a lot of conversations that are taking place, but it's like, well, don't buy this land if, if you can't even park your building here. Um, and you know, there's some pretty simple th studies that we can do up front and it's probably very similar to how your pre-construction side ends up being on, on that end. Right. And um, we would sometimes we've used the word as pre pre-financing side, you know, before you pursue bank financing pursue before you pursue the project, get an idea whether it's feasible, what the budget might be, a, a very rough budget. But so for very little cost, which sometimes we would even do that in an hour on an hourly rate for, for very little cost and time, quite frankly, we can really give the owner some insight as to whether that project's feasible or not. So I, I, I would highly recommend that they invest that small amount of money and time to make sure that's gonna work before they start spending some really some real money so awesome um i one question that we have is regarding the so like a, a general contractor and i'm going to speak specific to general contractor on this one um 
what would you say that the difference is between a general contractor who's doing commercial work and a general contractor who's doing residential work uh, is? Well, um, not to disparage any one side or the other, um, because there is a bit of a bit of uh, healthy skepticism on both sides, or some maybe sometimes unhealthy skepticism on both sides about what a residential general contractor is and versus a commercial general contractor. I will say that most of the reputable contractors on both in both entities are very competent. Um, how they go about the process is generally the same. Uh, the commercial process um, generally is is more time to get to the project um, start generally because there's more requirements from municipality, more entities involved, uh, more moving parts. Um, but and then the the subcontractor workforce generally doesn't work in both areas. There are subs subcontractors that do and very good ones. Generally, your, your mechanical electrical contractors maybe in both in both realms uh, the framers the concrete subcontractors generally will either remain in the residential side or the commercial side uh, with rare exceptions uh, multifamily housing is one of those exceptions where it's kind of a hybrid between residential and commercial because it's somewhat of a complex project for multifamily but single family homes versus a commercial project generally you're going to have different subcontractors the regulatory environment may be a little little higher. Um, liability may be a little higher on the commercial side. The expectations, when I say, I mean, the homeowner expects a great project too. There's no doubt about that. But the acceptability on the commercial side, as we've always been drummed into our minds by the big box clients like the Walmarts and that is built it per plans and specs. It's 100% design. There is no deviation. If there is a deviation requested or something, it has to be per, it has to be permitted and uh, approved by the client and the arc, the design team. Um, so we really focus on the design side. The plans are much more expansive. Every detail is laid out. We literally are building a road from a roadmap. On the residential side, that is generally not the case. the The plans are generally a floor plan. There's a lot of dialogue between the client and the designer and the, the contractor. Um, and some meaning that there's not a lot of information, a lot of um, detail is not in the plan. So it's generally discussed on regular visits and walkthroughs and such. There, that can create a, a little more risk for confusion, um, a little more risk for uh, um, incomplete um, building or maybe the owner's expectations haven't been met because uh, there's been some some things that were done that maybe they thought were going to be done differently. So I would say actually the, the communicate in the commercial in the commercial world the communication is very very structured. You know we have a certain protocol for our communication. In the residential world it can get a little bit loose, but I recommend in the in the residential world that we approach it the same way, which is very formal communication plan so that you don't have uh, misinformation and misunderstandings and end up having the client not get what they thought they were going to get. Um, so actually a little more responsibility on the residential side because of, of that um, versus the commercial side where everything's really laid out in protocol where in the residential side it's not. 
It does sound like, though, that there could be some risks if you if a business owner hires a typical residential uh, contractor to build a commercial project. That it's just a different world, and there might be some changes in how things are done. It, it, yes, it is a very a vastly different world. Uh, the regulatory, again, not to not to say that the residential world isn't concerned with safety and and uh, environmental and those kind of things. They are. But maybe the stakes are a little higher on the commercial side. Um, there's, there's more visibility. Um, the the regulatory, you know, our auditors and regulators are much more attuned to the commercial side than they are the residential side. Although residential is experiencing that where things that maybe were okay to do in the past are not okay anymore to do, which is actually good. Safety has ramped up and it, that is, those are things are good. Um, but on the on the commercial side, I guess the way I would state that is, if we make a mistake, that mistake's going to get fixed. It's going to get torn out. It's going to get redone, and that can be very expensive. On the residential side, sometimes there's concessions that can be made. Hey, we'll give you a credit, or hey, we'll, you know, this is going to be too expensive to to fix. How about we go this direction? So sometimes we call that build design which we're kind of building it and then you'd figure out if that was going to be what your intent was or not. And so maybe a little more acceptance, which isn't necessarily great for the homeowner, but sometimes there's a concession of, Hey, this is actually going to improve what we were desiring because there is no formal plan there. Therefore that's, we're kind of, they're kind of making those choices as they go in the commercial side. It, you know, generally the, the plans are very detailed and when mistakes are made, those mistakes get fixed and uh, at the subcontractor's expense. So they can be very expensive to a subcontractor who's not used to that. You know, they, they can't necessarily say, hey, well, it still works. Let's just accept it. No, it can't be accepted. To have, even if it's functional and it looks good, if that wasn't the owner's intent, it's going to get replaced. And that can be very expensive to a subcontractor. The liability they take on a commercial is, is much higher, I believe than on the residential side. Well, speaking of mistakes, what are some mistakes that you've seen uh, first time business, well, business owners who are building a building for the first time, what kinds of mistakes do they make and how can they avoid some of those mistakes? So you're talking about the client, the client that wants to build that. Well, I think the first mistake is buying land before they um, have vetted that out with a competent design team and a, and a construction team. Um, that's a big mistake because there are lots, lots of um, clients who have have a piece of land that that's you know they're trying to sell because it's not going to work for what we're doing, which delays costs. I mean, it, it increases their cost and and most importantly delays in in getting their project done. Uh, the other mistake I think would be either this is kind of a mistake on both sides. If they're so, for instance, you have a lawyer or a, a doctor whose their primary source of income is doing their practice. If they're overly concerned about their project and distracted, they're losing money. They're potentially losing customers because they're so focused on the construction when they're already paying a fee for a competent contractor to be doing that work. And then on the flip side, if they are not interested enough and they're completely oblivious to what's going on on the construction side, 
things can get done that they aren't intending and they can be un, you know unhappy with the outcome of that project. So I think there is somewhat of a middle there where they're allowing competent professionals to build their project, but they're also aware of what's going on. And so again, that comes back to communication. In most businesses, but especially in contracting, communication is the key. There's a lot of great contractors. There's not just one contractor that can do a great job. Many contractors do a great job. Where they set themselves apart, which where we hopefully we set ourselves apart is the communication because that it really is the key. And to have great communication, you've got to have great structure, um, protocol, how things get done so that miss every day that our main job is to eliminate misunderstandings. It really is to get clear information to the, the right person from the right person is really our job on a daily basis. I would definitely agree on that communication piece is it seems like every, every issue that uh, we've ever looked at, it's like, Oh, where did communication break down? And that's, that's really the root of any, any real issue. And I think that even, you know, kind of looking at that, uh, the dynamic that you were talking about with either too involved or not involved, um, both during the design phase and then, and then later on during the construction phase, we do what's, um, we do a weekly or biweekly uh, meeting with the client and uh, frequently if it's a design build type project, that's the client and the contractor or uh, CM uh, construction manager that's that's involved in those meetings. And then once it transitions from, hey, the design's over, that transitions to, hey, every two weeks, uh, typically the architect and the, the general contractor uh, construction manager is on site with the owner available to, to look through the, the entire project. And, and that's generally, I think that's, that's been enough uh, when those clients are showing up to those meetings and um, that it's, it's run pretty smoothly. You, 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 I, yeah, with your 28 ex years of experience, maybe you can speak a little bit more to that if, if that's not the case, but yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, I think that's what's made, I think the contracting world has improved, um, from when I first started and the communication is the key. You know, again, it used to be, we'd hard bid a project that was fully designed. We would go to work and many times we wouldn't even see the design team or the owner during that whole process. And an owner walks through the building that they haven't even seen for the 10 months and says, this isn't what I was looking at. There's some mistakes made here. I'm very unhappy. It's a very poor time to find that out after most of the work's been done. Very time. Yes, very expensive. So regular, regular communication is very key to make sure that the intent is on track. Even the most fully designed project, again, I use the example of Walmart because the um, those plans are the most detailed that you'll ever see. Even with that, literally the day we start work, changes are being made. You can spend unlimited amount of money and unlimited amount of time and you will not get exactly what your intent is. You never will until you start building. There's always either something on the design schedule was not correct or the intent was not clear um, or there's an outside issue that's, that's come up the a regulatory issue where a code has changed and now will no longer, the design will no longer work with that specific code. So changes are starting immediately. 
And an owner needs to be aware of what is going on, not on a daily basis, I mean, but on a regular basis. So having started regular, um, we call them OACs, owner, owner architect contractor meetings, has really improved that process to where before things get too far along that are maybe going in an unsatisfactory direction that can get corrected without undue expense and time um, given up on that project. But the owner still would should have the expectation that the design professionals and the construction professionals can take care of the day-to-day -day work and make sure that the intent, which is, should be clearly defined, is being met. And then that gets checked on a regular basis through construction reports, design reports, and uh, those those biweekly or weekly meetings. And we, we've started doing that at least biweekly on every job we do, even the smallest jobs we do. It could just be a check-in call. Sometimes we don't need to even have a conversation, but we set aside a time regularly for everybody to be involved. And we expect even the owner to be involved in that. The owner is a very key part of that. We don't want an absentee owner. Um, we want somebody who's aware of what's going on so that um, we don't have dissatisfaction down the line when, when uh, you know, we want a happy client. So... Um, what would you say from your, from your standpoint, what do you feel like the state of, uh, commercial, um, commercial construction is in here in Southeast Idaho? Well, I can't speak for, uh, the entire segment is we're a small part of that right. segment, but I would say that Bateman Hall has, uh, been reaping some very successful, um, projects these last few years and uh, we have a good robust workload of good good projects and uh, work on hand we're always looking at work on hand and backlog and the, there's a, the saying in the construction industry is we're always putting ourselves out of work meaning we're completing work and we need more work and so it's always nice to have a good robust backlog and it's a balance that's very, very difficult. It's either too much or too little. It's very hard to balance. We want just the exact amount. It just doesn't work that way. The timing just doesn't work out that way. But I would say in Eastern Idaho as, as a whole, commercial construction is probably as good as anywhere, maybe even better than a lot of places. Um, I think, you know, INL has a lot to do with that. Um, our, I think our commercial sector here is still strong, big box market, retail market, I think is still strong. And right now, and manufacturing is as strong as ever. And I would think that right now, probably warehousing and industrial is, and multifamily, of course, uh, but warehousing industrial has been a big boon here. Um, the just-in-time inventory system where you have trucks delivering goods to your front door every morning, I think is broken. I don't know that it's ever going to be like it was in the 80s and 90s. So warehousing, um, storage capabilities, um, local manufacturing have uh, have arisen. Those needs have arisen because of the, the distribution obstacles that we face now with our highway systems and regulatory and staffing and, and drivers that we're going to maybe a little more micro manufacturing, uh, local manufacturing and uh, local distribution. And that has that's been going good for the last uh, several years and it will continue i think will dominate the market as well as multifamily, which is still dominating the market given 
even though the the construction costs are still rising somewhat, not maybe not as much as they had in the past five or six years, but still rising. Um, I think we still have a labor shortage, and I don't know if that's ever going to be corrected in, in my future. Um, and the interest rates are really impactful, but there's still a need for housing. So multifamily housing is still still strong, not not like it was last year and the years before, but it's still being pursued. But yeah, manufacturing and industrial is probably the biggest segments right now that are still going really, really well. So those same factors that you've just listed that impact the state of construction, are those some of the same hurdles that a, a, a contractor faces, the labor shortage? Uh, what are some of the other hurdles then? Uh, distribution is definitely a big hurdle. Um, time, timeliness of delivery. You know, um, when when I first started at Bateman Hall, generally, not you know, not always, but generally, materials that were ordered, you could generally assume that you're going to have delivery within the amount of time that was expected, whether it be two weeks for windows or six weeks for doors or what have you. And those were those were very stable. You knew that. If you needed rebar next Friday, you can get rebar next Friday. COVID has been a big part of that, breaking that that whole ex- expectation. But even before that, the, the delivery system has, and the man, and, you know, just the the availability of goods has become fragmented, such that that's probably our next biggest obstacle behind communication, to make sure that we have the long lead items that change all the time. We knew when when we were doing Walmart 25 years ago, we knew we had to order the Joyce and Deck six months before delivery. Now it could be a year before. We You don't really know it changes all the time. One thing that was very, very expected and uh, very reliable, next month could be completely unreliable. So the dynamics of making sure our materials arrive um, on the expected date is probably uh, the second biggest challenge we have now. And uh, the, the labor challenge has been here for a long time, and it's always a challenge. Even though you think if construction is slowing down, there'd be more labor available, and that's not necessarily the case. The companies still need more work to function, but even with, um, even if they're pursuing work to stay in business, they still having they're still having issues with staffing. There's just not enough. Even when we're slowing down, there's still just not enough competent um, construction professionals. Um, and a lot of them have gone out of the market and pursued more, maybe more stable positions and careers, and that's been difficult to attract um, individuals into the construction environment, which is very volatile and uh, unsure. It's difficult to say I'm going to go into construction and and have a great lengthy career. We hope we do, but the nature is so volatile where we got too much or too little. It's very difficult to raise a family with that uncertainty. Um, some people don't don't like that uncertainty. <laughs> Based on your experience, what would you say that the number one thing, uh, like if you were to make a recommendation to a client that's considering a building? What would that recommendation be? Uh, buying a building? Yeah. Building um, a building. Oh, building a building. Yeah. Well, I, again, I think the number one recommendation is to, to find a 
qualified, competent design professional and a qualified, competent construction manager and engage them on a preliminary basis. Again, you're not, you don't have to commit the entire project, but get those two entities involved um, to do the preliminary uh, discovery to make sure that you have a viable project before you, you buy land. And how to vet that design professional and the construction professional, I think um, their, uh, their reputation is a big part of that and their experience in the, the market that you're in, I think is a big part of that. But I think most importantly is, is getting all three together and, and getting a feel for how the communication could work and the harmony and uh, just making sure there's no barriers there between the entities. Um, and uh, I think just uh, making sure their, their reputation is is probably the biggest the biggest part of it. You know, interviewing previous clients or or others that have worked with those entities. Most design professionals and construction professionals are capable of building pretty much anything that you're looking for. So it's not necessarily their experience in your exact sector that you're looking at. It's more of their experience in you know the, their history. You know how they've been. Um, how they've completed their projects, that they left dissatisfied clients. Um, because there's going to be issues on your project. That's why you're hiring a, a, a general contractor. But most importantly is how have they, how they completed that work. So when there's tough things that happen or, um, or issues have happened, whether it's delays or cost overruns, how have they handled those things, I think is important as, as what their experience is. So we don't want somebody who's going to walk away and leave you, leave you hanging. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Vision Driven on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us grow and improve our content, and it also helps others discover the podcast. Remember, at Resin Architecture, we are dedicated to teaching and learning and are committed to helping business owners like you navigate the exciting journey of building. Stay tuned for more episodes where we'll continue to bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and actionable advice to fuel your real estate aspirations.